Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 60. I'm Jim Cornell and this is the weekly LaBiotech podcast. And can you believe it's the 60th? So well into the second year. And we have a really interesting conversation for you today, but more on that in a little while. I know I mentioned doing a sponsored walk on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Well, that was on Saturday and amazingly, the rain held off. My son got some blisters on his toe halfway around, but we still made it in under three hours. Not sure about the bagpipes trying to explode my eardrums at the start, but it's all part of participating in an event in Scotland. I think if there were no pipers, it would break some medieval law. Speaking of which, I read that in Scotland, it's against the law to refuse someone the use of your toilet if they knock on your door and are desperate. I can't say that it's ever happened. And I'm also not really keen to test it out by knocking on someone else's door. The podcast today is the last one in August and it's going out on August the 25th. I couldn't find a lot of science news from that date. Everyone was probably on holiday, but it was listed as the date of the first CAT scan in 1973. So that's 50 years ago today. I haven't seen any memorabilia about it online or any great celebrations. I know that musicians milk every anniversary that they possibly can with re-releases and shirts. And sports teams also do the same thing, whether it's the anniversary of their founding, a trophy win, even their stadium opening. So cat scan, you're missing a trick. However, when you read up on CAT scans or CT scans, August the 25th would appear to be the day that they allegedly went into full commercial use in the US. It would seem that the anniversary of the first one was October 1971. So, as with everything, it depends on your source and your perspective. Today is, however, definitely National Banana Split Day, and it's also the day in 1609 that Galileo demonstrated his telescope to the Venetian lawmakers. I'm not sure why, and I'm also not sure what the result was. So let's get to August the 25th, 2023, and today's guest. There was an interesting paper published in July entitled Costs and Causes of Oncology Drug Attrition with the Example of Insulin-Like Growth Factor 1 Receptor Inhibitors. Basically, it said a lot of money's been wasted on oncology programs that fail. So to talk about that paper, what's wrong and what can potentially be done to fix it, we had a conversation with one of the paper's authors, Jack Scannell. And rather than me tell you about him and what he does, we'll leave that to Jack. All right. So I guess to get things started, if you could give me a little bit of background on what you do. So uh, I'm currently the chief executive of a very freshly minted biotech company called Etheros, which is a spin out effectively from Vanderbilt and Oxford, or that's where the scientific founders were based. And it's a company that is focused on neuroprotection, exploiting some sort of rather unusual new chemistry. But I've got quite a varied background. So I, I started out as a medic a very long time ago, never qualified. I worked, I did a PhD in neuroscience. I worked as academic neuroscience. Then I went into consulting where I learned a bit about the drug industry from there into drug and biotech investment. But over the last 20 years, I've sort of bounced around between drug and biotech investment biotech drug discovery and policy. And over that period of time, I developed a particular interest, I'd say, in sort of 
three things which are somewhat related. One is in R&D productivity. The second one is in why screening and disease models so often give us the wrong answer. Uh, and then the third one is in the sort of technical aspects of R&D measuring uh, sort of R&D finance. So th that's sort of my background. And, and I think that's why I got asked to help write this paper. But I should also mention seeing as we're going to be talking about the recent cancer paper my co-authors there's Valerie Gents who did a lot of the work she was doing a master's at LSE at the time she's now working in health policy Lisa Osipenko was one of the, the people who took a lead on the paper she used to work for NICE and now runs a kind of think tank called Concilium who are interested in sort of trying to make clinical development better and then one of the authors is a guy called John Hickman who's a very long established cancer biologist he was a professor at Manchester University and then he worked at Servier for years running the scientific side of their oncology business. So definitely um, a good cross-section of people to be able to create this paper that's... Yeah so we had people who knew about, po know about policy right and health economics. We had Hickman who knows an awful lot about the practical details of cancer drug discovery and then I think I, I for this particular paper was bringing a view about models which is something that also interests John, uh, and also just doing the financial part of the analysis properly. Because again, I think particularly in the public policy debate, financial analysis of R&D is very often not done properly. Which brings us to the paper itself, I guess. And the paper was basically on the expenses of clinical research and the factors with regards to the failure of inhibitors of the insulin-like growth factor one receptor in oncology. I Maybe you could give me a bit of background on that story in terms of what the inhibitors are, what they do, that kind of thing. OK, so the insulin-like growth factor one receptor blockers, I would say, were the sort of product of arguably the second wave of cancer drugs, the so-called targeted therapies. And the first wave were the cytotoxics, which really, you know, started in the 1940s or 50s. You know, more recently, we've got immuno-oncology, but sort of sandwiched in between and still going, we've got the so-called targeted therapies. And enthusiasm for that general class really grew in the late 1990s and sort of first decade of the 2000s. And that was with the success of a drug called Gleevec and also arguably Herceptin. And I think people started to view cancer through the lens of oncogenes, so mutations that drove uncontrolled cell proliferation. And I think the original excitement around this particular target was that in vitro experiments done in the early 90s showed that cell lines that lacked this particular receptor were resistant to a variety of um, oncogene dependent transformations, right? So, so you could make a number of different oncogenic changes in cell lines in vitro. And those cells seem to be protected against being transformed into cancer-like cells. And that obviously raised a very intriguing possibility, which was that you could make a single targeted intervention that could block the effect of a range of different oncogenes. And I think that was why the class looked interesting. And I think there's a view that there might be kind of broad relevance rather than just relevance in a particular narrow type of cancer, which is one of the characteristics of a lot of the oncogene targeted therapies. So in terms of the issues with regards to the amount of money that has been spent, I wonder if you could tell me what the main issues are and how much money is being potentially wasted. I'll focus on the money first, right, because other things were wasted as well. But on the money, and again, excuse me here if I'm, if I'm a bit of a finance pedant, right, but there's lots of different <laughs> ways of measuring the cost of R&D. And I think it's quite important to define 
you know how you've calculated your costs otherwise they're largely meaningless right when you when you want to compare them with other kind of costs and we were lucky enough to get access to a commercial database from evaluate and they effectively build benchmarks which are based on company reported accounts so small drug companies often report expenses at the level of individual clinical development programs and through that you can start building benchmarks for the costs of those clinical development programs that's what the commercial vendor does and the costs that you get from that approach i think are best thought of as the r d expense that would have shown up in company accounts associated with the programs and there's different ways to measure r d costs that's not the only way but you know with that methodology you know we had around two billion dollars would have been expensed on the clinical development of the igf 1r agents you know but if you want to look at it another way 16 drugs went into human trials there were i think around 180 clinical trials in total in over 12,000 patients over a 12-year period and not one of those 16 drugs was ever effective enough to be approved so in this case it was you know 12,000 patients getting on for 200 trials initiated over a 12-year period and costing something like two billion dollars a lot of money um i guess it begs the question why is this happening I'll make the money seem even bigger before I uh, before I answer your question, right? So that was for one program, right? Oncology has become, you know, roughly 40% of the global pharmaceutical pipeline is now oncology related. Cancer drugs have among the highest clinical development failure rates. So if you make reasonable assumptions and you say, well, okay, how much is the drug industry spending today on clinical trials of cancer drugs, which ultimately don't work or don't work well enough to be approved? It's probably in the order of 50 to 60 billion dollars a year. Right. So this is a huge, huge cost. And I mean, I think why is it happening? I think there's sort of three broad categories of explanation that we allude to in the paper. I think one is that the screening and disease models, you know, which I like to think of as decision tools, they're intrinsically poor, i.e. they fail to recapitulate important features of real human cancers and also often they're badly applied, right? So that xenografted animals, which is, for example, a very common model, are typically only treated for 35 days, right? And actually assessing treatment effect over 35 days doesn't translate very well to human treatment. The wrong go, no, go criteria are applied, right? So people are insufficiently rigorous about how effective drugs have to be in those model systems, right? So A, the model system doesn't predict humans in the first place. And then secondly, people are, I think, are very often insufficiently rigorous about the performance you have to show in those model systems before initiating human trials. I think a second point is that oncology R&D is arguably over incentivized at the moment by a kind of remarkable historical pricing bubble in the US. So, you know, for reasons that I won't go into unless you want me to, cancer drugs in the US have almost infinite pricing power. So the prospect of large prizes in financial terms, sucks in a huge amount of R&D capital and makes people arguably rather risk tolerant. I think you also see a kind of herd instinct slash wrong incentives, right? So I think people doing oncology R&D and indeed in some other areas, they're bad at evaluating competitive risk, right? So I think people don't know what everyone else is doing and they don't effectively discount the value of their program sufficiently 
if there happen to be 10, 20, 30, or in some cases, 40 or 50 other similar programs, right? So you see in some crowded oncology niches at the moment, you know, several tens of candidate therapies going for the same target in the same indications, right? And that suggests that people deploying capital and making those decisions just aren't paying enough attention to what other people are doing because they're not all going to win. But I would say these are hard problems to fix. It's not as if people doing oncology R&D aren't clever because most of them are. But we've got a rather sort of, we've got a network of incentives that arguably incentivize a sort of industry or system level the wrong kind of behavior. You mentioned those incentives and the fact that a lot of money's going into cancer is that to the detriment of other conditions? I don't think so and again possibly I'm too much of an economic rationalist here but I think because cancer look right other therapy areas don't look bad because cancer looks good right from a from a sort of commercial R&D perspective other, other therapy areas I think often look bad just because they look bad right so so in a sense it's not clear to me that if a bit less money went into cancer R&D more money would go into other areas and I think we can all think of areas where one might argue that the kind of financial incentives for oncology are too strong right or rather are not aligned with the kind of public health was sort of optimizing sort of the, you know, the public health benefit from pharmaceutical R&D investment. But one can also point to other thera- to therapy areas where the incentives are too small. Right. So, you know, antibiotics, I think, are a case in point where you can see that the prices are too small and you know, private sector capital you know, effectively largely exits. You know, so I think it's difficult to balance. I think oncology, arguably, from a sort of social perspective, perhaps too much R&D capital is deployed. But I think, again, it's hard to fix, right? And it would be easy to go too far the other way. The amount of money that's being lost or wasted, does that apply to other areas as well? Or is it really just oncology where there's a lot of money going into clinical trials without necessarily anything at the end of it? The short answer is yes, but I think there's a lot of difference between different therapy areas, right? So the industry is pretty diverse and also the R&D success measures in different indications or different settings do differ quite a lot, right? So, so oncology is towards the sort of low end of the spectrum in terms of how likely things are to work in the clinic. If I recall correctly, yeah, anti-infectives are towards the, the you know, higher end of the spectrum in terms of how things are likely to work in the clinic. But I think there's a sort of broader contrast, right, which runs throughout all of modern drug R&D, which is remarkably even if you adjust for inflation, it costs about 100. The industry spends about 100 times more per drug discovered now than it did in 1950, despite the fact that there have been huge gains in both the brute force efficiency and the quality of the technologies that most people doing drug R&D or biotechnology think are important for drug discovery. And my personal view is that a lot of that is to do with the progressive commercial exhaustion of the diseases for which the disease models accurately predict human outcomes. Right. So there are a number of eminently modelable diseases, in my view. But the problem is those are the diseases where the drug industry has been historically successful. So the technologies that were used to discover drugs in those diseases are retired. We don't need more stomach ulcer drugs. Right. Arguably, we don't need more beta blockers. We've got a lot of very effective antibiotics, although, of course, one would like more. So in those disease areas where the models really work and give scientists the right answer, the commercial incentives are effectively eroded over time by the historic success provided by those good models. And what we're left with is we're left with the diseases where the models over the last hundred years of the drug industry have failed to give us good treatments 
things like Alzheimer's, solid cancers. And ironically, people keep using the disease models in those areas precisely because they fail to identify good drugs, right, that would render the models redundant. So I think there's a sort of tricky problem here, which is the selective retirement and commercial exhaustion of the most predictive screening and disease models has over time made drug R&D more and more difficult in those areas for which we don't have good models. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. A pretty wide open question, but could you explain maybe some of the solutions that there may be to address some of those issues? This is a complicated problem and people doing drug R&D are not stupid, right? They're probably an an, an unusually non-stupid group of people. (laughs) And I think you've got a kind of complex network of incentives that mean an individual level or even a company level sort of behavior is in some ways very rational right but it's kind of it's driven us to where we are but i think if i had to sort of point to things that could be done better and here probably i'll focus more on cancer although probably some of these comments apply to other areas i think people should pay more attention to model quality and the evidential hurdles that cancer drugs need to pass in model systems before you put them into the clinic now I recently read a paper with one of the authors on the cancer cost paper, John Hickman, which was specifically around screening and disease model validity, how you measure it, why it matters. And I think there's a quantitative result from that paper, which is model validity is even more important than most people think. Right. So no one working in the drug industry thinks a bad model is a good thing to have. And everyone kind of thinks that, okay, I want my models to be good. I want them to recapitulate, you know, the relevant aspects of the human pathology. But I think in quantitative terms, people don't realise quite how strong that model validity effect is in terms of your ability to make the right decisions. Right. So I think even more attention paid to model quality and also the kind of efficacy hurdles and the kinds of tests that you perform in those models. I think that helps. Right. I think the second thing, which is to me pretty obvious in oncology at the moment, is that there's a surprising amount of competitive crowding with respect to hot targets. It seems clear that with a lot of targets, there are just so many programs chasing them that even if programs succeed, the incremental benefit to human welfare from the sort of 20th PD-1 or PD-L1 agent or or the 15th anti-CD38 agent is going to be small, right? And it's a hard problem to solve, but I think one could imagine companies being more cautious in investing in heavily competitive therapy areas and also some sorts of financial incentives or policy initiatives to try and drive a bit more technical diversification. So you don't have situations where we've got the 20th agent in a successful class or indeed like in the IGFR1s where you've got 16 agents, all of which fail. And then I think the third issue is that, in my view, there's remarkably little good retrospective analysis of failure put in the public domain. So I think because drug R&D is difficult, because it fails most of the time, people kind of just accept that that's fine, let's just move on. Also, the timing scales are long. I think people are not incentivized to really learn the lessons from failed programs. You know, so if you look at the IGF-1R program, for example, if you think, you know, 12,000 patients, nearly 200 trials, $2 billion, You'd expect to have some pretty good postmortems on that in the public literature, right? Now, there's a few papers out there which kind of, you know, do a bit of head scratching, but it's not really a kind of sort of rigorous public analysis of what went wrong and how to stop it happening again. How do you think that AI and machine learning have impacted or 
can potentially impact this? I'd call myself a sort of cautious ML optimist. So I'd say I'm an optimist in the sense that I have on occasion seriously engaged in the application of machine learning to drug discovery. I don't pretend I'm an expert here, right? So take whatever I say with a pinch of salt. And also I would say if you're if you if you or your listeners are really interested in this, in my view, Andreas Bender is required reading, right? He's published some great articles lately on this subject. And and possibly I'm talking about them because they tend to confirm my less well-informed prejudices. But my view is, you know, drug R&D is lots of small battles. It's not one big battle. And lots of those small battles will be substantially helped by AI and have been substantially helped by technologies which, if they're invented today, would be described as AI. The application of computational quantitative methods to drug discovery is not new. Protein folding, for example, where we've heard a lot about alpha fold, this has been done or been a big focus in you know, structural biology for many decades. But I don't think it's going to be revolutionary. And, and the reason I don't think it's going to be revolutionary is I think lots of the high quality data that one requires for not all, but for some machine learning techniques, that data is absent very often for the most important parts of the drug discovery process. So if I come back to my sort of obsession about screening and disease model validity, any AI system that you've trained on lousy data from a lousy screening and disease model is likely to be just as lousy as the screening and disease models, right, on whose lousy data they've been trained. So if lots of human experts look at their xenograph data and decide that putting IGF-1R receptor antagonists into, into human trials is a good idea, if one uses that same xenograph data to train machine learning systems, you're going to get the same wrong answer that the people got who looked at that data. I think the problem is that the major data constraints, or rather lots of the many key problems in drug R&D are, are related to data quality and quantity and data classification. And I think that means that we're going to see lots of progress in certain discrete areas but the overall process as a whole is unlikely to be sort of transformed on a kind of step change basis. Although, of course, lots of technologies are helpful already and will continue to be very helpful. I would recommend reading Andreas Bender rather than listening to me on these subjects. <laughs> all right. Thank you. You mentioned all of the failures right at the beginning there. And clearly there's an awful lot of money being spent in clinical trials, not just in oncology, but is there a potential danger of that money drying up if there are so many failures or is it just a case of companies saying, well, for every X number of failures, we get one success. So it's just a reflection of that not all trials succeed. I'll make a very general point first. I think there's a surprising sort of gap, I would say, in the sort of public policy debate, which is around the general value of pharmaceutical innovation for society. The value of pharmaceutical innovation is surprisingly contentious. And the value that you assign to new drugs is terribly sensitive to the methods that you apply to define the value of new drugs, right? And different methods will produce different, not necessarily unreasonable methods will produce very different answers. So if we don't really know the value of new drugs, it's quite hard to have sensible debates about how much money should be spent, right, discovering them let alone whether that should be money from the private sector or public sector, right? Whether you should have prices, you know, providing an incentive to, for, for private sector R&D or whether the government should be spending on R&D. So I think there is a bit of a sort of a surprising vacuum 
in, I would say, the sort of sensible policy debate about what the value of pharmaceutical innovation is full stop. So with that proviso, I think in terms of commercial oncology R&D, I think there's actually reasonable evidence already that actually just think about commercial R&D in the drug industry. I think there's reasonable evidence already that if you take the cost of capital into account, the drug industry is probably losing money on its R&D. Right? I saw an OECD report very recently which made that point. Drug R&D is quite a long odds business. But funnily enough, I don't think the capital is going to dry up anytime soon unless there is some sort of external pricing shock. And part of the reason for that is, I think, the same reason that people play slot machines in Las Vegas. If you've got a situation where some people are doing are obviously doing very well and the failures are less salient and less well advertised, you can have systems where actually you know, you don't have sort of pure economically rational behavior. I think the drug industry looks a bit like that because the winners are so obvious and so lucrative. You know, if one thinks about the, you know, some of the big immuno-oncology drugs, people are willing to venture capital, hoping that they might get one of those. So the high prices and the huge success of the winners in oncology, I think is going to keep people playing. Now, if I think that if there was some sort of major shock to US drug pricing, and there is there has been a, sh a bit of a shock called the Inflation Reduction Act, but I don't think that's enough. But I think if there was a sort of huge shock to US drug pricing, you could see capital, a sort of bit of a capital flight from oncology R&D. But it's certainly the case that some therapy areas, I think, don't look sufficiently attractive. And again, I've, I've mentioned this before you know, in this chat. You know, I think antibiotics are somewhere where at least the private sector, I think, scratches its head to think about how it could you know, spend money to make money with novel antibiotics. So capital withdrawal can happen. But I think that the sort of the very large prizes that are associated with successful cancer drugs that people imagine might be associated if one could come up with a really good Alzheimer's drug, for example, I think that will keep the capital flowing. Right. I guess maybe it's connected to the fact that when we see some of these huge acquisitions in life sciences, the it's not just a five million takeover. We're looking at you know one point three, one point four billion dollars for takeovers of some of these companies. Is that tied in with what you were saying about going for that big success? Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it is. And there's a, a very famous sort of book on kind of sort of economics and innovation by a guy called Schumpeter, which I think was written in the 1940s. So Schumpeter is incredibly famous in the sort of world of sort of innovation economics. And he makes the point that lots and lots of new business investing or venture startups have this characteristic that you have a very small number of people making huge returns. And if you've got a small number of people making huge returns, that can be enough to motivate a much larger number of people to play the game, despite the fact that the average player is probably losing money. And you see this kind of economics in gold rushes as well, right, where a small number of people get very rich. But the kind of average, but yeah, if you look at the sort of median average player or the geometric average player, right, they'll be losing money. Obviously, when it comes to all of the financial costs, the bottom line, one would hope, is helping patients. How do you think that we can get to a point where trials are developed that expose patients to less dangers and give them ultimately a promise of better treatment? I'll make an important general point here about, I think, therapeutic innovation, which is there is a kind of ratchet of progress 
if you look cumulatively over time, despite the fact I, I during this interview might have sounded you know, sort of miserable and depressing about the economics of drug R&D, there's absolutely no doubt that I would rather be ill now than at any other time in human history. There is also a sort of remarkable positive from the way drug R&D works, despite all of the problems. And that remarkable positive is that today's blockbuster is tomorrow's generic. Over time, you have this kind of cumulative progress. And not only that, but the leading edge of technology, when patents expire, becomes very cheap and can become very, very widely adopted. So I do think it's easy to underestimate the cumulative effect of pharmaceutical innovation. And despite what I've said about the economics, I think that means, at least in policy terms, I tend to, I would say, fall towards the sort of liberal wing of testing drugs and then releasing them into the wild. So I think one can make the case that for the shareholders of the companies who funded IGF-1R trials and for the patients who were recruited into those trials, this was you know, costly for the companies and you know, hugely disappointing for the patients. But it's still the case that everyone benefits from the discovery of new drugs. And I, and I also think that actually often it takes a long time once drugs have been released onto the market before we really know how well they do. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a drug called methotrexate, which is now arguably the mainstay of autoimmune treatment. That was discovered as a cancer drug, I think, in the 50s or 60s. Lots of drugs become safer over time, not because their chemistry changes, but because healthcare systems learn how to use them. Right. So immuno-oncology drugs look ferociously toxic, some of them when they first came out. But actually now we're quite good at managing the side effects of uh, some of the immuno-oncology drugs. Same with chemotherapy. Right. It, although it's still toxic and horrible for many people, it's become more tolerable over time as physicians have learned how to manage the side effects. And I think the fact that there's a kind of lot of real world innovation once drugs are released into the real world and also because of this kind of cumulative effect of a ever improving generic back catalogue, that tends to make me, make me pretty liberal in terms of allowing clinical testing to happen. But I still think that people could think much harder about the quality of the screening and disease models and the decision criteria that they, that they apply before initiating trials. And also, I think there should be some both private sector and sort of public policy initiatives so that we don't have 20 or 30 almost identical candidates chasing the same indications. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree 100% there. Do, what would you say that ultimately sort of as a as a takeaway message i guess what the potential solutions are that you'd like to see again i think i'll sort of focus my comments here on oncology and i i think the sort of the, the sort of three main things that i would like to see done differently the first is thinking much harder about what the models really tell us and what they don't and how well compounds have to perform in those models and the suite of models that one should use before initiating human trials the second is the private sector and or some kind of policy initiatives that drive diversification and they avoid overinvestment in some mechanisms and underinvestment in others. Right. So, you know, the world is not going to be made a better place by the 20th anti-PD-1 or PDL one therapy. But if some of that capital was deployed against novel targets, although those compounds are individually less likely to work, than the PD-1 or PDL one drugs that we know already have a valid target, it's still much more useful from a sort of social perspective to have that 
new thing tried rather than the old thing tried for the 20th time. And then I think the third does relate just to postmortems. You know, fields like the IGF 1R blockers, you know, that, this can grow up. It can become a huge industry. It can trigger 200 trials in 12,000 patients and 16 drugs. And then it can kind of die without people really wondering what went wrong. Yeah, there's a few review papers in the literature, but no, I would say systematic rigorous postmortems of what went wrong. Um, and I think that that makes it more likely that you get the same mistakes happening over and over again. Hopefully you found that as interesting as I did. And Jack is also now based in Scotland. However, he's on the other side of the country in the capital, Edinburgh. In some places, you measure distance by time. For example, when I lived in North America, you would say, oh, it's a two-hour drive rather than the actual distance. That isn't really useful in some parts of the UK because for me to get to Edinburgh on a good day, it can be one and a half hours. On a bad day, it can be three. And that depends on the traffic, which road you take, whether there's been any accidents, whether you get stuck behind a tractor, or if someone is driving sheep along a single lane road. Anyway, next week we're into September and we have a few podcast subjects already lined up, although the interviews aren't necessarily done. One of them I'm doing the day before the podcast goes out. So if there's an issue with that one, I could be in trouble. Anyway, I hope wherever in the world you are that you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening to this episode and I hope you'll join us next time for another Beyond Biotech.